According to the United Nations World Food Programme, more than 900 million people around the world don't have enough food to eat. And with a number that large, you might be led to think that the world just needs more food. But is that the case? In today's episode, we're talking about food loss, specifically in farming. So how big is the problem of food loss on our farms? And how do we tackle this growing challenge? I'm Matt Eastland, and welcome to the Food Fight podcast from EIT Food, exploring the greatest challenges facing the food system and the innovations and entrepreneurs looking to solve them. Thanks to the new Driven to Waste Global Food Loss on Farms report from the World Wildlife Fund and Tesco, we now have a much clearer understanding of the issue of food loss at farm level. The report reveals that an estimated 2.5 billion tonnes, and yes, that is billion tonnes, of food that is grown globally goes uneaten around the world each year. And as we work towards sustainably rebuilding our environment, minimising food waste on our farms surely has a very important role to play. To reflect on the report's findings and their possible solutions, we are joined by two amazing food loss heroes. First of all, we have the Senior Director of Food Waste at WWF, Pete Pearson. So WWF is an organisation helping people and the environment thrive. And Pete works on food waste prevention and recovery, helping businesses understand the intersection of agriculture and wildlife conservation, and is also one of the authors of the Driven to Waste report. Great to have you on the show, Pete. Thanks for having me. And our second guest is co-founder and CEO of Oddbox, Emily Van Propang. Oddbox is a food waste startup delivering wonky fruit and vegetable boxes direct from farmers to consumers across the UK. Emily, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be with you, Matt, and to be with Pete as well. Great stuff. Thank you both for joining us. So I guess just to set the scene a bit for our listeners, so the Driven to Waste report, it highlighted that 1.2 billion tonnes of food is wasted on farms each year, and approximately 40% of all food grown goes uneaten. And I guess just to really play devil's advocate, isn't this just a kind of a normal part of farming that's always happened? And you know why is this issue so important now? Pete, one if I can start with you. Yeah, thanks. Well, I think there's this reality that in farming, you're probably never going to get to zero waste. And if we look at the entire supply chain, zero is an impossible number in reality. But what you can do is you can start to recognize where there's holes and where you do have maybe higher levels of loss than we need to be tolerating. And we tolerate a lot of loss today in our system. Mm -hmm. So I think the real key is we need to start measuring better. We need to start looking at how much loss is being created. And then what I think happens from that is people get really creative. They start doing things when there's data, when there's an awareness around a topic, and we start a, an explosion of innovation. And that's what's exciting to me about this is the positive that comes out of the measurement and the recognition of loss is what we can do with it when we identify it. And Emily, from your experiences, have you seen with working with farmers that this is something that's always happened, this, this sort of tolerance that, that Pete talks about? I think there's always been some food waste and food loss, but I think right now our food system has actually become a lot more inefficient. We've, it's grown to kind of prize uniformity over taste and over the planet. And actually... We live in a world where on-demand everything is the norm. So that means farmers are left with surplus veg no matter what they do. 
if we want blackberries in January or Brussels sprouts in June, actually we can walk into almost any supermarket and pick them off the shelf. Mm. But that's not really how nature works. We overproduce a lot more than what we need because we want everything available all the time. Thanks very much. And I suppose then that the reason that this is such an important issue now is because we have so many mouths to feed already, right? So wasting wasting food and or losing food in the system is just just completely wrong, correct? Yeah, correct. And actually, on a global level, we could feed all the malnourished people in the world with just a quarter of the food we waste. So in some ways, we can solve food poverty by reducing the amount of food we waste. Obviously, it's not as simple as that because it doesn't necessarily happen in the place where we have food waste. But on a macro level, we're just producing enough for everyone. Wow. Okay, I didn't I didn't realize the statistics were that stuck. Just a quarter of the food waste would feed all the malnourished people. That's that's quite shocking. Um and and Pete, you know, just looking at the report itself, so why why did the WWF like commission the report? What was the incentive for you? Well, I mean, I, you have to start with why we're even focused on food systems in general. So World Wildlife Fund, one of the largest global conservation organizations, like why are we involved in food systems? Mm -hmm. It's because food systems have such a huge impact on ecosystems and biodiversity. When you look at what's going on across the planet, we are losing forests and grasslands and ecosystems because agriculture continues to expand. And when you have that expansion, it squeezes nature out, right? It doesn't allow for biodiversity to thrive. And so th this is part of the equation. To me, this is a math equation. Like, how do you feed a planet? You start plugging in the equation and you have to leave room for nature. If you don't leave room for nature, then you're putting at risk the entire agricultural system to begin with because it depends on nature, right? It depends on pollinators and it depends on life on this planet. And so food loss and waste is one piece of that equation, right? We have to reduce and minimize loss and waste across the entire supply chain. And as we've been doing this work, we bring in partners like Tesco, who are, Tesco is probably one of the most serious about waste of any company in the world. I mean, they really have been pioneering waste reduction and, and it really started within their supply chain. We partnered with them because they wanted to look at how their suppliers and their farmers were also, how do you bring the whole supply chain on board? And so when Tesco and, and WWF partnered on that, that was how this report was born. Thanks very much, Pete. I love the fact that, you know, like big players in this space like yourselves and Tesco are kind of coming together to work on such an important issue that's, you know, so, so vital. And I love that quote you're saying about it's a math problem where we need to make, we need to make space. What was it you said? You need to make space for? Save space for nature. Because Save space for nature. Yeah. If you don't, you, uh, the food system relies on nature. It relies on all the ecosystem services that it provides. And it's not just about loss and waste, right? There's an element about what we're growing and what the landscape, like what types of things we're farming. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here's the other thing is we also talk a lot about terrestrial systems. Our brains just naturally go to fruits and vegetables and what's grown on land. But there's also an amazing amount of pressure on our oceans and our freshwater systems that provide protein and fish. And if you look at the loss and waste in those systems, 
that's equally as bad. Like, why are we over harvesting our oceans and then comfortable with maybe 20, 30, 40% loss rates of seafood and fresh fish? It's just bonkers. Yeah, really shocking stuff. I, I completely agree. And I think, Matt, what happened is that actually we've lost connection with food. We've lost connection with how food is grown because food is too, too cheap. It's just too cheap and therefore we don't value it. And actually the pandemic has made our relationship with food change because we've seen kind of scarcity of food. We've experienced mm. that. And But the price of food doesn't actually reflect all the resources which go into growing and restoring the land and restoring the water and, and kind of the social and environmental cost of what it takes to grow the food we consume. Yeah, uh, I agree, Emily. And actually, we've had a few people on the on the show before talking about the you know the effect of the pandemic on on the food system and people's people's habits and devastating as this this whole terrible thing has been i suppose one of the the few positives if there is such a thing that's come out of this has been that like you say people are now starting to look more at their food and are starting to look at the value of food and as soon as you start taking things away from people that that sort of rings rings alarm bells with them so i guess yeah i guess that's one good thing um and one of the things that you've both been talking about is sort of you food loss and food waste and i wonder if just for the benefit of the listeners uh you know could we just quickly explain the difference between food waste and food loss because i think a lot of people use these uh, terms interchangeably so who wants to have a crack at it yeah, I mean, so this is one of the things that the Driven to Waste report was trying to, it wasn't trying to shake it up, but it was just trying to rethink this a little bit. So what you see from groups like FAO and the definition of food loss is that it's like this decrease in the quantity of food as a result of things happening within the supply chain, things happening on farm. I, I would put it in terms of when you get up until the grocery store are things that are classified as loss. So everything that happens before it gets into a grocery store, that's one way of like trying to simplify it. And then everything that happens after it's received commercially in commercial food service or in a retail grocery store, that is classified as waste. And the idea there is that there's this, this idea of waste is we are wasting things because of poor decision-making or because it's, it's really a choice for us, right? We have the amazing luxury of wasting food as a choice in our society. Things are so abundant and we're, some, some societies are so rich with food that we, we can choose to waste it. But I think what we tried to do with Driven to Waste is say that, look, the loss that is happening prior to it being received in the food service and throughout the supply chain that loss is also driven by poor choices or poor design or just inefficiencies that we can improve. And so in that way, we can think about it a little bit as it's waste. Like we are consciously, we know about it and we're creating this. Um, but, but that's a little bit on the definitions. I, I would say loss is anything before in the supply chain, more towards farm. And then waste are these like consumption patterns that are happening once it's in a grocery store or once it's in our homes. 
Perfect. That's super clear, but also one of these quite important things to get right. And I know we're talking about mainly about food loss in this podcast, so that's useful. Um, Emily, coming to you. So Oddbox obviously deals with both food waste and food loss. So what was your inspiration for starting Oddbox? Where, where did the company come from? Yes, so uh, so actually, as you can hear, I'm originally from France, and I actually grew up in the north of France. And my grandparents on both sides were potato farmers. So uh, at, when I grew up, I actually didn't know at all about the issue of food waste until uh, six years ago. So ten years ago, I moved to the UK, and uh, I was quite amazed by the fact that, uh, as I mentioned, I could get strawberries in winter. But strawberries in winters don't really taste great because they are imported from Spain or North Africa. They've been picked unripe and they kind of lacked that sweetness from ripening on the plant. And there's amazement in the variety, but there's also some frustration in the fact that uh, I knew what proper strawberries tasted and couldn't get that. And uh, actually, uh, the... Uh, what we would say the light bulb moment uh, happened uh, six years ago when we went on holidays to uh, Portugal. And again, there we would do our shopping at the local market and we tasted uh, amazingly tasty and juicy tomatoes, which looked ugly, were different size, shape, color. And that kind of brought me back to thinking about that uh, disappointing experience with the strawberries. And that's when it kind of made me question why the UK food system was so different from what I could get on the local market in Portugal. And that's kind of uh, through doing some research, uh, that's when I kind of really realized the extent of food waste and why there's so much kind of food which is uh, being wasted or lost or, or why uh, there's so much of overproduction. Just wanting to uh, to do something about it uh, to make a difference. And when we started, actually, we started on a really, really small scale uh, at the weekend with a handful of customers in South London. And since then, we've been kind of on, on a journey of... So for us, it's not only about rescuing produce at risk of going to waste, but it's also about... Actually, we've got an amazing medium to bring awareness of the issue and to educate people how to make better choices. So... Mm-hmm. We provide kind of fruit and veg, but we also provide a lot of education and awareness and helping, supporting people in changing their mindset and behaviors. Amazing. What a story and how how very worthy as well. And my understanding is that you work directly with farmers, right? So you work with them to kind of take the food that would otherwise go to loss. Our model is actually unlike anybody else in the system is that we don't tell our growers or suppliers what to grow. Nobody grows for us. We work with them and take produce that they don't necessarily have kind of a place to sell. So we kind of position ourselves as if you've got any surplus or if you know that there's produce which will be out of specs, because uh, in lots of cases, they kind of know that a proportion of the crop will be out of specs and they won't be able to uh, sell it to retail. Um, in some cases, they might be able to uh, send it to animal feed or uh, to kind of other destinations. 
But quite often, it's, uh, it might be a distress sale, or actually, uh, we feel that it's kind of a less efficient use of resources. We're not growing food to feed uh, animals. Mm. The, the food was grown in the first place for human consumption, so it should go to humans. Got it. And I'd like to unpack that particular point a little bit later, which about why these things happen. But so why don't we um, say thank you, Emily. Why don't we talk um, more about the the report itself? And and Pete, I'm very interested and I know our listeners would be as well. You know, what what are the findings of the report? What you know, you've done this amazing piece of work, which I think is the the first time, oh, sorry, that it hasn't been done for like 10 years, I think. So this is obviously very like a seminal piece. So what, what are the main things that you found? I think one of the main things is that there is a huge data gap. Like we just don't collect enough data. There's not real measurement. There's not a real recognition about what is going on on the farm, Uh, especially for fruits and vegetables. They tend to be more what I'll just call free market type uh, endeavors where, you know, growers are trying to identify what markets will be hot in certain years. Um, Some of them are always growing the same things year over year, but there's a, I think a relative lack of measurement that's happening each year to understand how much surpluses there are and a real failing of the entire supply chain. This does not rest on the farmer's shoulders in terms of what's going on. And I think that's the biggest piece that we wanted to communicate in this report. This is something that the supply chain and in particular retailers and institutional food service buyers, like the buying community of foods, they have to recognize that they have a stake in this. They they have a role in creating a more efficient system. And that could be even, you know, kind of simple things that we think about, like better contract mechanisms where you're taking responsibility for the entire crop, or you have a concerted effort to make sure that when you do have surpluses, you're trying to find the best possible place for them to go. And I I really like what Emily said, where food is meant for human consumption. And so if you have more actors in the supply chain that are trying to make that effort to make food available for humans and for people, that, that that's what you want. It's not just about putting all this on the farmer because they want nothing more than their food to go to people. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the big thing too, is there has to be a little uh, margin in it. You, nobody just wants to donate their way out of this. Cause that's not sustainable. Like you have to have some profit and some, some incentives financially in order to do this because it's a cash game. Like trucks have to move food from one place to another. You have to have a cold chain. And nobody does this for free. So that, it, you know, you have to factor that in. And, and I think the food industry is actually trying to kind of do something, but I agree. And actually the report is amazing because that's reading of the very first time there's proper data on how much food waste is wasted at farm level. And for us, mm. it's kind of amazing to have access to this data because there's been a lot more focus on food waste at, in retail or in kind of, uh, manufacturing or at in people's home, but there's never been really a lot of focus on food waste at farm level. And the solution right now is very much about redistribution. So it's kind of not really addressing the root of the issue, but finding kind of alternative kind of routes and donating food to charities um, and 
So a lot of retailers now will not have any kind of waste or surplus in their store because they have mechanisms to partner with charities and donate, which is great. But they are not really taking responsibility for what happens um, before it arrives to them. Because as Pete mentioned, actually, uh, they don't take responsibility for any over uh, production. They work on very flexible contracts where actually they change uh, their contract on a weekly basis or sometimes daily basis based on the actual consumer demand. Which is unfortunate because if you think about food and especially perishable food, the worst time to be wanting to donate it or get it to people in need is actually at the end of its life in a retailing or a merchandising situation, right? So here's another problem that needs a lot more study and real-time measurement is when you do put food that is coming out of retail into a donation market, a lot of that goes to waste Mm. because it's at the end of its life, right? And so we need to be measuring that metric as well, because I think you probably have a lot of food donation and food banks that are receiving product that doesn't ultimately make it. And it's just creating waste in their waste system. The best time to be rescuing food is probably when it's like on farm or when it's being maybe rejected or something's happening in the supply chain, distribute it then. Cause then you have more life to the food. It's less, you, know, you have more availability and time to get it where it needs to go. Yeah. And, so. and that's why for us, actually we work directly with, with suppliers because as Pete is saying, it's kind of, because then we get really good quality produce, which then kind of ends up in being eaten by people. Mm. Just listening to you talk, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, things are sort of sparking me, and I'm thinking, is so there is an issue here of visibility then, right? You know, so like you say, Emily, we, we're more and more aware of food waste as kind of consumers, so from sort of retail into homes and businesses. But as far as I can tell, anyway, there seems to be much, much less visibility of food loss at a farming level. And I I wonder if anybody really knows how big this is. I mean, I, I think looking at the report, Pete, it seems that actually there is a lot more food lost at the kind of farming level than there even is in the residential and consumer space. Is that right? Here's, here's our experience. We've been working on food loss and waste from farm to fork for about six years. I can't think of an example where we, when we started measuring, there was always more than mm-hmm. what we thought there was. Almost in every example, whether you're working in a hotel or a restaurant or a retail grocery store or a farm, like there's this anticipated level of loss and waste that you think there is. And once you measure, almost every time there's more than what you thought. And so this idea of a radical transparency, I think, is what's needed. We have to start being comfortable reporting and continuously measuring on waste. And that is not something that the business community and the world at large really likes to do. Waste has always been this thing where it's we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to measure it. We don't want to report on it because it makes everybody look bad. Well, unfortunately, we don't live on a planet that can handle this anymore. Like we can't carve out every last place in the world and and turn it into agricultural systems and then be tolerating waste. Like there's just no way to sustainably do this if we continue to build waste in our design. So we've got to just be comfortable reporting it and measuring it. And we've got to dispel this myth that it's the secret thing that nobody can uh, talk about. 
And, and actually, Matt, when we started Hotbox, whenever we would go to visit growers, they actually would say that they don't have any waste. Because in their definition, waste is, is something which ends up in landfill. And so as per their definition of landfill waste, there was no waste because they were finding alternative. So they would leave it in the field, which they would say is not waste. Um, they would send it to animal feed or they would, so they would find growers don't want to waste. So they'll always find uh, a way to kind of minimize the, uh, what they send to a landfill. But on, on another point that Pete mentioned, people are a bit more aware of the issue of, of food waste. However, only 30% of people realize that actually food waste is what we say as the invisible monster driving climate change. Mm. So uh, on a macro level, If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest contributor to greenhouse gases after the U.S. and China. And, and people don't uh, understand that. People don't realize all of the resources which go into growing. And maybe just to kind of put it more at an individual level, uh, one kilo of potato takes 300 liters of water to grow. So that's the equivalent of three showers. And... People don't know that. So mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of focus on plastic waste. There's a lot of focus on uh, electric vehicles or moving to electric fleets. Um, but there's still, in our opinion, not enough focus on food waste. And food waste is actually kind of not really on the agenda for uh, COP26, which is the conference discussing climate change in November. Wow. Okay. Some some shocking statistics there, Emily. And you know, thank thank you for sort of flagging that to our listeners as well. That's I think you're right. People do need to know this. And also, it it's really interesting that you say about farmers that you know they don't they don't see it like this. It's like you know, well, food losses. You know, we plow everything back in, or they they don't see it in the same way. Um, and one of the things that seems to be coming through a lot here is is this whole measurement piece is super important because it's actually exposing the, the the scale of the issue now that we've kind of laid this out and it's you know everybody can see how big this problem is what are the reasons for it so you've you've, you've spoken about there's some issues around contracting with farmers uh, and we know that it's not farmers uh, fault and like you say Pete um, no farmer wants to waste anything so where does this come from what well, one of the things that uh, the report also highlights is that there's these two myths that exist in a developed country context and a uh, developing country context. So the idea is that, you know, in places where you have more sophistication in terms of cold chain harvest me mechanisms, machinery, you have less loss. Well, we found that that's actually not the case, right? If you look at what's going on in developed country contexts, you're still having that loss, but it's mainly because of market factors, you know, last minute changes to orders, cancellations, rejections of loads at distribution centers. And so what you have is a market dynamic that needs to be corrected. And I think, you know, I mean, it's 2021. We live on a much more sophisticated planet in terms of our connectivity and the way that we can trace and track information. And so what we need to do is we need to build in, and, and people are doing this, like companies are doing this, build in that more sophisticated information system 
so that you can always be monitoring what's happening, what your supply chain looks like, what your surpluses look like. And when I say measurement, I don't mean it in the academic sense. Like we don't need academic studies to be doing measurement. I think what we need is to institutionalize measurement, like to make it sexy in some way, which I'm, if, I, if we can figure that out, I think we'd be great, but I haven't, we haven't figured that out yet. Like, but if you can get the supply chain constantly in a feedback loop where it's learning from itself, it's identifying the information flows on loss and waste real time or near real time, then you start to learn from yourself. Like you start to have that feedback loop and you make corrections when you have the information. The problem is today is that, that information isn't in a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And, and Emily, I can see you are nodding along there. Do you have anything to add? So I, I think as much as kind of we're better at, so at forecasting crops, the weather is becoming increasingly unpredictable. And so that's also a constant challenge for growers. So for example, last year, um, there was heavy hailstorm in spring when uh, apples were uh, still tiny. It, it damaged their skin. And whilst they grew to be perfectly good quality, they have skin markings. And that can be one of the reasons why they will be rejected by retail, because they don't look perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. And I, I guess we're now moving into the, the more positive side of the, the podcast, which is we're, we're starting to talk about, so we've sort of outlined the, the challenges and it's, it's huge, but we're sort of moving into the solution stage. And so, you know, you, like institutionalizing measurement and making measurement sexy, if that's possible, obviously a really, a really big thing. But what do different players need to do and how do they work together to make this happen? Um, you know, Pete, what did your, the report find here? Well, there's some positive trends. Obviously, you have groups like Tesco and you have another coalition called uh, Champions 12.3, which has launched basically an initiative called 10 by 20 by 30. The the idea was you get 10 of the largest uh, food service companies in the world to get 20 of their major suppliers reporting on food loss and waste and meeting the 2030 goal that we have. Um, what has now happened is that has now ballooned. It's it's more and more companies are now asking their supply chain actors to start measuring food loss and waste. And so that's what we need. We need this general recognition that we've got to start identifying loss and waste within the entire supply chain and set targets and goals to reduce it. So very positive. You also have companies like Walmart that has really invested in this in terms of not just food loss and waste metrics, but all kinds of carbon reduction measurement that they're trying to get their supply chain to start measuring. So all really great things that are happening. And again, what I love about it, when you look at loss and waste, you start to identify all the unlocked possibilities of what you can do with things, right? And so for the examples where maybe it's not a human edible food, but it can go to animal feed, and it can create a byproduct that then feeds fish in aquaculture. Or, I, you know, I just saw something yesterday where you're taking byproducts from things like corn husks and all kinds of different byproducts in agriculture, and you're turning it into disposable plateware that biodegrades in seven days. You know, like all of these possibilities start to become unlocked when we look at a better efficiency of the system. And I think it's a really fun time. I mean, it's, there's still the depressing numbers and the figures that we got to wake up to every day. 
But I think we're realizing what happens when we take advantage of everything that is going to waste and realize there is such an abundance of like raw materials. We don't have to even have the idea of waste anymore. We can totally change the game. Yeah, this is where the, the kind of the magic of innovation starts to happen, right? When everyone comes together and really sees the problem and starts exploring all sorts of creative avenues to solve it. And and I guess, Emily, Oddbox is one of those solutions, right? I mean, this is obviously why, you know, you, you saw the need and, you know, this is what you're trying to do. Yeah. And, and actually for us, one of the things that we're doing is for every box that we send to people, we actually quantify the resources which have gone into growing the produce and we deduct our own emissions because we do home deliveries. So there's also kind of, um, uh, actually something that uh, businesses are starting to do is not only uh, show what it costs in terms of price, but also what it's taken in terms of CO2 emission. So I think there's a huge part that business can play in showcasing the environmental impact of the food that we consume. Brilliant. Yes. And let's encourage more and more businesses to be doing exactly these kind of things. I love that. So, Pete, I mean, the report is fantastic and I really encourage all of our listeners to read it. But I guess just kind of looking forward a bit, you know, do you think that there's a big seismic shift coming in the world world of food loss? Do you think we're, we're at that that place already, or do you think we've still got some way to go? Uh, I mean, we've we've got to get governments committed to look at this and want to invest in it. You have to hit a critical mass. I mean, when you look even on the waste side, and the fact that you know it's something like ten or twelve percent of food waste is composted or or recycled, like two percent of our nutrients globally are returned back into soils or returned back into. I mean. We've got a huge uphill road. And what Mm. that requires is governments have to commit to this. They have to do this in collaboration with the private sector. So you got to get businesses involved with government and you got to make investments. Like there is a real infrastructure investment that you have to make. And it's likely in the billions and billions of dollars, you know? And so that investment is going to include better harvesting technology for developing countries, uh, better information systems across the board, things like better roads, better cold chain, um, better waste management systems. Uh, and specifically, like uh, we, our brains tend to go right to composting and anaerobic digestion, but it mm. can be also as simple as collection. Like how do we collect food waste and how do we manage it better? These things all take money and they take commitment from governments and business. If we get that, and if we get that in the next like three to five years, things can look pretty hopeful. But if we just keep dragging our feet and you don't see those commitments at government and private sector level, it doesn't look that good. Well, let's let's hope that we do get those sorts of commitment, particularly with COP26 uh, this year as well. Um, and Emily, you know, given what you do with Oddbox and, you know, you're, you're on the ground, you're, you're sort of speaking to farmers, you... You understand kind of what, what consumers are asking for here. You know, what do you see for the future? Sort of food loss, but also, you know, specifically with regards to Oddbox. So just kind of on the food loss part, I think for us, actually what we've seen with Blue Planet and plastic waste is that as citizens, we've got a huge power to influence 
big businesses and governments. So our ambition is actually that by bringing awareness and educating people around the issue of food waste, then we can try to kind of influence governments to uh, do something about it. Uh, as citizens, we also need to change the way we eat and not expect that we get everything all the time. Um, the way we shop will influence what retailers will do. Um, mm -hmm. So they respond to kind of consumer demand. Uh, in terms of outbox, we're only in uh, half of the UK. So it's about expanding to uh, the rest of the UK and being available to more people to uh, do something on uh, kind of a daily basis. So uh, one thing that we've started is actually kind of collecting a lot more data uh, from our growers in terms of what would happen if we were not taking the produce that we take. So helping in terms of we think we can have a role in terms of that uh, reporting at farm level. Amazing. Wow. Okay. And, you know, Pete, on from WWF side, you know, you, you've got the report now. You obviously are looking to drive change as well. So what what's the next step for you in this space? You know, how are you sort of pushing these recommendations forward? The way that we're pushing recommendations forward is to, we have a couple large groups that we're trying to work with on the producer side to get loss and measurement. So there, there's a couple initiatives where that's happening. I'm particularly interested in developing country settings where you have growing economies, growing tourism, and specifically sub-Saharan Africa. You know, places where you're going to see a big increase in population, a big increase in affluency, right? People are going to be increasing their livelihoods, getting out of poverty. When that happens, diets shift. People mm -hmm. expect more in terms of their diet. So I would love to see better design happening in those systems. Like, wouldn't it be amazing for these developing countries to leapfrog what is happening in the rest of the world? And to really move just immediately to that next stage of better food system design, minimize loss and waste, and to see a really circular system where you're trying to limit the expansion agriculture has. Because, you know, in these places in Africa, it's wildlife that we're trying to make keep room for. And so that's my ambition is to see that really happening, that leapfrog effect happening in developed countries. So in some ways, then, you know, developing countries are going to learn from the mistakes of, you know, developed countries and, you know, try to avoid all of the all of the things that we've done wrong. Right. Hopefully. I mean, because the planet can't handle them not. I mean, we're just going to be needlessly wasting the entire resource base hmm. for food that doesn't go anywhere. And it just is it makes no sense. You know, and I, and I would say if I had one wish. It's for this idea of no more conversion of landscapes. Let's leave nature alone. Like, let's not just start, you know, tilling up all the grasslands and let's stop cutting down the forest. I mean, that's my one wish. If we just stopped agriculture's expansion and had a zero conversion mindset throughout the food system, that solves a lot of the problems that we're going to be looking ahead to. Yeah, and... <laughs> It's funny you, you say that you're talking about the one wish. I was going to ask you both, actually, you know, so to end on something maybe a little bit more positive and imaginative, let's say. So, you know, Pete, I can hear your one wish, but um, in an ideal world, you know, what what would be the one thing that you would change the way that the food is produced, Emily? So 
I, I guess for us, I'm not sure we would uh, change uh, the way food is produced. I think we wish to change how food is perceived and how food is consumed. Mm -hmm. So actually, kind of in terms of how food is perceived, kind of more value and people to understand the true value of food and for prices to reflect the true cost of growing the food, conserving the land, the water, and the other resources which have grown into the food we consume, and kind of realizing that actually we're, we're in some ways living on credit, and uh, it's the future generations which will pay the price of what we didn't pay. And so that's kind of for people to realize that, and also for people who can kind of understand that we need to... Uh, consume in a way which is closer to how nature works and adapts. Maybe kind of going back to how our grandparents were eating in kind of a more seasonal way and enjoying the fact that you don't necessarily get everything all year round. And that's mm. what people are saying about Hotbox. There's some joy in getting the surprise of different types of fruit and veg on a weekly basis and not always consuming the same thing and consuming things uh, which are kind of uh, surplus or which uh, might not look perfect, but needed a home. Yeah, and I so agree. Uh, I, and you're right, you know, we, we all get used to just eating the same things over and over again. And, you know, life is hard and life is busy. And I guess that's what people do. But you're right. When when somebody delivers something to you where actually you just have like the surprise, like you say, it forces you to be creative and innovative and puts you more in touch with food and, uh, and you know, it makes you want to cook and all those great things where lots of other important things happen off the back of it. Um, before we finish, actually, I, I, I there was a question that I wanted to ask you both. And it's, um, I don't know, maybe it's a philosophical one, but I'm always really... <laughs> confused i guess is is the word as to why people perceive fruit and vegetables for example to be to be kind of ugly and you know this which leads all to all this sort of farm uh, farm loss etc is it because when i i grow you know as much fruit and veg at home as i possibly can and i delight in the fact that when you get a tomato it's all ugly and it's kind of grown in different ways because i find that that just makes it a little more more natural so why is it then that when you get to a supermarket that suddenly you want everything to be perfect. I'm just wondering, where does that come from? Is it just that we're all kind of so led by marketing and branding that we just assume that that's what food should look like? I, I think it is just, I mean, look at when you just watch the television, how much imagery is, at least in the US, I mean, I'd say most of the commercials we, we see are all about food, right? And so you're constantly hit with these visual images of what food is and what it's supposed to be. And over time, I mean, you have decades and decades of reinforcement of that. You're going to just, it's going to be automatic and instinctual when you go into a, uh, a grocery store, when you shop for it. So it absolutely is a product of marketing and the imagery that has just been burned in our brains. Mm. And, and Emily, I guess on your side, you're you're probably finding the alternative now, right? That people are actually they want to have this kind of fruit and veg now. Yeah, and and actually sometimes we uh, we get people who who can kind of feel that 
they are getting, they are not getting enough of uh, odd-looking produce in their boxes. So there's kind of uh, that that expectation that everything will be odd-looking, whilst in lots of cases it's just kind of bigger or smaller. But I think it's the expectation that we've set, and people have never seen a lot of people have never grown their own produce, so they've just been kind of, uh, told that's how uh, mm. a cucumber is, needs to look like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right, and maybe this is this is just on me because, like you say, unless you know, then you know. You, you, I guess what I'm trying to say, you don't know what you don't know. So yeah, I can understand that. But embrace the odd is what I yes. what I take from that. Um, can I can so, I add just one final thought? Yeah, of course. So fruits and vegetables, totally. I mean, I I am all for making sure that we're reducing loss of them, but I think it's really important for everybody to realize that dairy, seafood animal proteins, these carry such a high environmental weight that mm. wasting them should almost be a taboo in our society and our cultures, right? Because when we waste those products, we not only waste them, but we waste all the resources that went into the, the production of those, right? And you have, especially in oceans, just we're totally overfishing our oceans and they're stressed out to the max. Like we cannot be wasting these products. And so I think that's that's a big imperative too for everybody to really focus on and to, you know, try to reduce waste and loss as much as possible for those protein products. Thanks, Pete. And that's very, very sage advice um, and, you know, a, a really nice way to finish the show as well. And like I say, I really encourage everybody listening to, to read uh, the report from WWF. Um, it just really leaves me to say, you know, a huge thank you to both. An amazing discussion. I love the fact that we're kind of unearthing this issue and I really hope that people pay attention to this. Where can listeners go to find out more information about the report and what you do? So, Pete, starting with you. I mean, the report is titled Driven to Waste. And so just a quick search in your browser, Driven to Waste WWF, we'll pop that right up to the top. And I'd encourage everybody to go check it out. Great stuff. And Emily, where can people find out more about you and Oddbox? Yeah, so people can go on our website, oddbox.co.uk or on social channels, Oddbox LDN. Amazing. So thank you both again for coming on the show uh, and thank you everybody for listening in. Uh, remember to head over to WWF and check out their Driven to Waste food report, like Pete says, to learn more. And of course, sign up to Oddbox to do your bit to reduce food loss as well. This has been the Food Fight podcast. Make sure to check out the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu. And please also join the conversation via the hashtag EITFoodFight on our Twitter channel at EITFood. And if you haven't done so already, please remember to hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. See you all next time. Mm-hmm.